anything wrong in this situation. He took a pitch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Please. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the Germans bomb Pearl Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers. We know it. Ask me about my winner. What's going on, everybody? Uh, breaking news. You hear that? Ben Simmons has decided he's going to be a game time decision for game one of the NBA Finals if the Brooklyn Nets end up getting there. Obviously, he's going to leave it up to that moment to decide he's probably not going to play. Basically, backing up everything that has been the narrative for him all along. He's going to make it through the season. He doesn't want to play basketball. And listen, the only thing that would give him any sort of credibility would be if he were to voluntarily retire and hand over the remainder of his contract that he is owed for playing basketball professionally. To me, I, I have no evidence that this guy wants to play basketball. And the only way that he could earn any sort of respect as a human being would be to forfeit the remainder of the money that he is owed for playing basketball. Because right now, he's getting paid to not play basketball. An awful lot of money. If he's getting paid a dollar to not play basketball, that would be too much. He's getting paid millions and millions of dollars to make a decision that he does not want to play. A couple of my takes from this weekend in the NBA. And listen, if he really had a chance, whether it was Saturday or Sunday or a combination of both, it was a really good opportunity to see a lot of basketball. And just kind of nitpicking through the games, I thought that there was good performances by the Toronto Raptors and the Denver Nuggets. I think you learned a lot about both of those teams. Maybe not that they're going to win the individual series that they're in. You know, Philadelphia, yes, they got the injury to Joel Embiid, which I think is going to impact them as they go further in the playoffs. But they're up three games to one. And, and I think you could look at the Denver Nuggets and their battle against the Golden State Warriors and the Warriors, who may not have been clicking on all cylinders throughout the game. You feel like the Warriors can win another game relatively soon. So my thought is not that either Toronto nor Denver is going to make it past this round. And listen, you know, history at some point, it's going to happen. There's going to be a team that is down three games to zero in the NBA in the playoffs, and they're going to come back and they're going to win an individual series. You know, they're going to have their Boston Red Sox of 2004 moment when they're trailing three games to nothing against the Yankees in the ALCS. Um, I don't really know if it's going to happen right now, but there was a lot of things that I liked when you, when watching the Toronto Raptors and watching the Denver Nuggets. Now, you know, they, they got a couple players in Denver that I wasn't as familiar with. You know, Bones is out there hitting three-pointers. I thought, I thought they had a lot deeper of a roster than they got credit for. They got guys that could score. And the narrative all along has been the Denver Nuggets are only going to go as far as Nikola Jokic is going to take them. And you can make a case. You know, Jokic, the defending MVP, could very well be the MVP this year. It's really hard to name three other players in the National Basketball Association that are more dominant than Nikola Jokic has been. That being said, 
there is a narrative that says that this Denver Nuggets team is only as good as Jokic because there was a couple moments in the game, and this is you know game four, one individual game against the Golden State team that I don't think gave its best ability going forward. I'm not going to ever knock effort. I think they, they 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 tried their hardest. They didn't play their best brand of basketball throughout the game. And I think that's why they lost, and that's why Denver was able to hold on in the end. But there's a couple moments in the game where uh, Jokic is on the bench, and they're hitting shots. You know, Bones is hitting threes. You know, uh, Morris, Mont- Monte Morris had a had a great game. I mean, he he looked he looked like he could have been he could be a legitimate number one scorer in the NBA. He was that good. And I understand they got a couple guys out. You know, whether it's Murray, whether it's Porter Jr. Those are two players, and you know if you've watched Jamal Murray play over the last couple of years, you know that that he really is that complementary player to Nikola Jokic. But you look at this Denver team, and I think they're a lot deeper than they get credit for. Now, does that mean they sh- should have higher expectations going into next year? Because I think it's safe to say that this season is probably going to come to an end. Didn't come to an end yesterday. And it came close to. They had a they had a pretty big lead, you know, certainly in the first quarter going into the first half. And you watched Golden State kind of knock it down, took a couple of leads, tied the score, and in the end, it, it was a couple big shots that Denver made at the end to win it. I don't think they can do that for three more games. Now, looking at the Toronto Raptors, and a lot of people are going to jump in and say, with the Embiid injury, perhaps that opens the door to the Toronto Raptors to come back and make this a series. Fred Van Fleet, his status for you know the next game, game five, and certainly forward, is in the air. And I think that's going to impact that team. But once again, similar to what I saw with the Denver Nuggets, you're looking at a Toronto Raptors team that has more depth than they're given respect for. Pascal Siakam really took the team on his back for the most part, but I thought that was a very solid performance in a situation where you could have been expected to just lay down. It wouldn't have been the end of the world if the Toronto Raptors had gotten swept by the Philadelphia 76ers. I don't think there's many people that were picking the Raptors to win this series. Now, certainly at 3-0, it's going to be hard to jump in there and say, hey, they're going to be able to go do it. Now, I think there's a little bit of a crack, a little bit of a crevice, a little bit of an opening where you could believe that there's a possibility now. Embiid, if he is not that type of dominant player that he has been, if he's hampered by his injury in any way, shape, or form, that the Raptors could win. Listen, they win this game in Philadelphia. They win game five. And all of a sudden, it's game six in Toronto. And they have another performance like they did in game four. And you're looking at... You know, Game 7, which you know, Game 7, anything can happen. And certainly by that point, the momentum would have swung to the place of the Toronto Raptors. Like I said, ask the Boston Red Sox. Ask Kevin Millar after Game 4 or during Game 4. Hey, don't let us, before Game 4, don't let us win Game 4. Because we're going to go out there and we're going to take Game 5. After we take Game 5, we're going to take Game 6. And in Game 7, you know that the momentum is already swung in the other direction. Now listen, that would be great for basketball. To me, it would be exciting. I'd love to see a seventh game between the uh, Philadelphia 76ers and the Toronto Raptors. I just don't think it's happening. 
And listen, maybe maybe a, a, you know a week from now or you know however long it would be to get to Game Seven, we could talk about it then, and I could admit that that I'm a little wrong. But I was impressed. I was impressed with what we saw from the Toronto Raptors. I was impressed with what we saw from the Denver Nuggets. Two teams that listen, their odds of winning the individual series that they're in are not very good. Still, are not very good. But they played hard and played a great game of basketball while they were facing elimination. The same thing I'm not going to believe when it comes to the Brooklyn Nets. Because you're already seeing, if you watched Game 3, if you watched Game 2, there's just something up with them. There's something from a chemistry perspective that's not working with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And you could say, hey, maybe over the last three years, the fact that they really haven't been on the court anywhere near as much as they should have been at the same time. Between Durant's injuries, between Irving and the vaccination thing, which I have no interest in talking about on this show, they, they haven't played enough together. And you know, part of that was probably the reason that James Harden isn't there. And James Harden got swapped for Ben Simmons, who doesn't want to play basketball. There is a little bit of a mess going on there in Brooklyn. Now, listen. I, I saw a lot that impressed me with the Toronto Raptors. The same I could say about the Denver Nuggets. Tonight, and I don't like to be you know time-centric when it comes to any point that I make on my show, but I'm very interested if we see the same sort of fire for that Brooklyn Nets. Now listen, Kevin Durant's got the ability to be the best player on the court at all times. He hasn't been this series. Jason Tatum has been. You can make a case that Jalen Brown has been more dominant than Kevin Durant. You can make a case that Marcus Smart has been more dominant than Kevin Durant. You can, Kevin Durant, who was supposed to be, in principle, when you look at his track record and what he's been about and what he does, you could say that he is the best player that could be on a court at any time, yet he hasn't been. If he does, if he has one of those per, you know great shooting nights, he goes you know 16 for for 28 for 45, 50 points, carries the nets on his back. Hey, you could have one of those games. You know, Kyrie Irving from a scoring perspective can put the team on his back as well. Maybe they got enough to have one of those nights. You you could tell who the better team is, and. Contrary to watching Toronto against Philadelphia, contrary to watching Denver against Golden State, I don't think we're going to get to a moment where you're ever going to believe that the Celtics aren't the better team. You've heard a lot of discussion about the Nets. Oh, maybe they were a little misseeded. You know, they missed Kyrie for all that time. Durant was out, what, 30, 35 games. And they haven't had a chance to play together. And because of that, they lost a lot of games down the stretch. Watched their seed go down. Had a play in a play-in tournament. They beat Cleveland. Got themselves the seventh seed. And they were probably a seventh seed that should have been seeded higher. The Boston Celtics, what they're doing right now, and what they've done to this point, is basically squash that theory. They have proven the Brooklyn Nets to be every bit that number seven seed in the Eastern Conference. And if you talked about it or thought about it when it came into this season, your vision would be, wow, what would have to happen for the Nets to be a seventh seed? They deserve to be the seventh seed in that conference. I look at the other teams that are ahead of them, whether it's Miami and Boston, who I extremely, extremely think are both underrated. 
I see them both playing in the Eastern Conference Finals, the one and two seeds in the tournament. I'm sorry, in the conference, not necessarily because of where they're seeded, but because they are the two best teams in the conference. Now listen, Milwaukee, Boston is going to be a fun series. Let's let's be serious. You know, Milwaukee is going to close out uh, their series pretty soon against the Chicago Bulls. I, I saw the Bulls. Bulls kind of reminded me a little bit of what I've seen with the Brooklyn Nets. A team with talent, a team with really good players, but a team that is just has that mentality, hey, we're beaten. We've met our match. And I think the Brooklyn Nets feel like that against the Boston Celtics, similarly to the way the Chicago Bulls feel that against the Milwaukee Bucks. I was expecting a little more from Chicago, certainly a position, a great position that they were in. If they could have won that game on their home court, all of a sudden you're looking at a 2-2 series, a best of three coming up, and the Bucks without Chris Middleton, all of a sudden you're thinking that the Bulls got a chance. I don't feel like that anymore. I felt that was the time, the opportunity, the shot for the Bulls to go out there and play their best basketball, and they were very far from it. The Bucks look like they're very easily going to get into the next round. So you're looking at Bucks celtics Listen, that might be the series of, uh, of of the next round to really follow. But I got Boston and I got Miami, two, to me, underrated teams, especially underrated from where they're seated in their conference. Everybody's looking past them. And listen, I get, get the Milwaukee Bucks won the NBA championship last year. Everything's got to go through them. The Eastern Conference has got to go through them. All that makes sense to me. But let's be serious. You know, nobody is giving the Celtics the credit they deserve. And from a team top to bottom, from coaching to leadership, which you're seeing Marcus Smart and Jason Tatum really lead that squad. And what other teams got that type of leadership right now? And, you know, are you looking at what they're doing on both the offensive side of the court and defensive side? Now listen, at some point, once they get past the Nets, which I believe they will after game four uh, tonight, they're going to go up against a team that's going to play a little better defense. The Nets, they're not playing any defense. They can't get a stop. Anytime you saw in Game 3, the Celtics needing to get down the court and score, they scored almost without any effort from the defensive side. They they D up better than anybody. And they're going to go up against a team that, from an offensive standpoint, is going to give it to them a little bit tougher, and they're going to defend them a little bit better. Milwaukee will probably do that. Certainly, if, if Milwaukee doesn't do enough, Miami will. And I think you're going to, but it's hard to look at the Boston Celtics and say that this doesn't look like the best team in the conference. Now, Miami, like I said, they're underrated in their own right. And you saw them just kind of beat up on an Atlanta team that, yeah, I think they're at a point where they should celebrate the fact that they're in the playoffs. Yes, they made it to the Eastern Conference Finals last year, but they're, they're, not, they're not as good. They're not Miami. And I get that they won a game, but they needed something, and they got to be a little more, uh, a little less dependent on just Trey Young. Very few teams in the NBA get by with just one player. And the the first point that I made about this, talking about Nikola Jokic and the Denver Nuggets, is he's got other players. The media just isn't giving these other players any credit when they're out there scoring. And you got Morris, and you got Bones, and you got Boogie coming off the bench. It, it, you know there there is some support to a player that you may say, "Hey, this may be the top player in the NBA, but he's got to do it all by himself." This isn't LeBron in Cleveland. 
This isn't, you know, any star that you want to name for Ghost of Christmas Past when you say, hey, that player by himself was so great, but he had nobody around to protect him. Nikola Jokic has got that. And if you look at the Atlanta Hawks, that's an example of a team that's dependent too much on one player. Where's the support? I know you could throw some names out there and say, hey, there's players that could score, but what player is taking the ball and putting the team on his back if Trey Young isn't hitting shots? Interesting to think about. So I wanted to touch a little bit about and talk about the USFL. And you've heard me talk before about the USFL, the XFL, um, the Alliance of American Football, any of these uh, leagues that have been put out there, and never to be direct competition with the NFL. That was the big fault, what ended up screwing up the XFL when it first emerged in the 90s. But to have a developmental league, to have an opportunity for players that can play football, to maybe get some recognition, maybe get another chance to play in the NFL if they did already, or maybe college players that were overlooked when it comes to the seven rounds of the NFL draft. And of course, we have the draft coming up in a couple days. There's going to be a lot of talk about that. Um, I'll probably touch more on that when it comes to the Thursday morning show. But you know, players that just aren't getting looked at, players that may have played well, may not get enough attention for a team to bring him in as a UDFA, undrafted free agent. There's a chance to play, a chance to get some notoriety. And so far, the opening weekend, and, I, and listen, I didn't see any of the games on Sunday. I watched the games on Saturday. Um, the performance, the product, what you were seeing was kind of what I expected. Certainly an inferior product. I thought the XFL, when it came back in the early part of the, the 2020 year before the pandemic, I thought had a little bit more talent on the field. Now, listen, I'm only looking at two games, a total of four teams. There's eight teams in the league, and maybe I caught those teams on a bad day. I, I feel like there is a lot more talent in the world of football and a lot more talent when it comes to players that aren't playing in the NFL that they could up this a little bit. And certainly the position I look at is the quarterback position. And, you know, whether it was Brian Scott, whether it was Josh Love, whether it was uh, Clayton Thorsten, or Thorson, uh, you know, I, I thought Scott out of the three probably looked the best. Thorson probably looked the worst. And and maybe that was just a, a, a pressure point. Hey, I'm on, I'm on television. This is my time to shine. And, and listen, we've all been through that, big moments where we say, hey, this is where I, I really got to go out there and give my best, and you go to do it, and it just doesn't happen. You force things. And, you know, he, it looked like he has a little bit of a throwing arm. It looks like he could throw a little bit. His accuracy seemed like it was off. And I don't know if he blew his chance right there. Is he going to get a chance to play again? Yeah, sure. He was sitting on the bench, you know, for a part of that game. You know, the other quarterback that came in got hurt. He got another chance to play, but... You know, certainly, if you're going to judge a league by just watching a couple games, you're going to look at the quarterback position. A couple things that intrigue me a little bit about the USFL, the three-point conversion, which you saw one of them happen for the first time. I think it was in the, uh, in, in the Pittsburgh-Philadelphia game. And the experimental rule for overtime to basically have a shootout type of thing. 
Both teams possess the ball within a certain, um, you know, lineage, uh, you know, yardage frame, and they get shots to go in the end zone. Hey, one play, uh, you know, whatever it is, three out of five, two out of three. You know, at, at the end, you say, hey, the team that scores the most should win. So I think it's something that the NFL should take a good look at. And similarly to the way Major League Baseball is experimenting with rules in the minor leagues, I think this is something that we could see in these other leagues. Whether whether we're talking about the USFL, whether we're talking about the XFL, which at some point um, you know is, is gonna is gonna do similar things, but these things to, to me, this is what you want to see. You want to see different rules tested out to see if they work and hold up over time. I think Major League Baseball is overdoing it. You know, moving the mound, moving the bases, and, you know, basically creating a different game. And for the life of me, I hope that baseball decides that this is going to be the last year that they have that runner at second base, the ghost runner, in, in extra innings. Because I will not watch a game that goes to extra innings. The second I see the ghost runner run out from the dugout to go to second base where there's no reason for him to be out there, that player did not earn their chance to be on a base. This is a rule put in by a commissioner that's doing what? I despise the rule. I have heard any of the feedback that comes back my way that says, John, you know, what about this? What about that? What about the fact that teams don't have pitchers after nine innings? Well, you know what? Save somebody. And even if Major League Baseball was to come up with a rule that would allow for an extra pitcher, an extra long relief pitcher, maybe a minor league starting pitcher, to be available to pitch in extra innings and in extra innings only, I'll be okay with that. And guess what else I'd be okay with? You're talking about 162 games over the course of a baseball season. What's wrong with a tie? There was ties in baseball for a long time. Not that many of them. You know, sometimes it was because there was no uh, no lights in the stadium. And, you know, after the daylight would run out, you just can't see anymore. And the game was tied and you had a call to tie. Didn't feel like making a game up. Well, you know, that was years ago. These games are less important right now. So you, you tell me that you can't give a team a chance to play 10 innings or 11 innings. And after that, just say, hey, it ends in a tie. If, that's what, if your sole purpose is to protect the pitchers and protect the narrative of Major League Baseball, which has gone in the analytic direction, which has gone in the direction of running as many 100-mile-an-hour throwing pitchers at a given team on a given day as possible, then I, I understand it. I understand why you'd want the ghost runner out there. But there's other options. You could just end the game after nine innings. If it ends in a tie, it's a tie. And then you want to go, are you, are you going to go to back to a, a different type of baseball that was played, that is played in the postseason as opposed to the regular season? Postseason starts, we're going to get rid of the ghost runner? Because even if that happens, which is what I'd prefer, there's no proof that that's going to be the case, it, you're still talking about a game of baseball that was played differently to the regular season than it is in a postseason. Now, you're going to have World Series games decided by a ghost runner? Game seven of the World Series, you're talking about a free runner that's on a base and he ends up scoring and that wins a World Series for a team. How do you feel about that? These are all things that have to be thought about, but just a couple different things that could be done here. Like I said, 
I have no problem with having an extra pitcher on your roster to say, hey, this is going to be the long guy, the long pitcher that's going to pitch in extra innings. And you want to rotate that pitcher on a given day based off of who's available to pitch in the minor leagues. And maybe somebody gets a chance to make their major league debut that may not ever play in the major leagues. You know what? That's good too. Or ties, one or the other. So a couple other things that I wanted to touch on today. And if I don't get to it all today, we're going to do it as part of the rollover show we're going to do on Thursday. We'll talk a lot of NFL draft. But, you know, I did want to mention, you know, we had a couple passings over the course of the last week, and one that probably isn't get, getting anywhere near the respect that it deserves. And I, I look at it from the perspective of what I remember as, as a young kid. And Guy Lafleur, of course, passing away, the Hall of Famer, the really dominant, dominant Montreal Canadian, four-time Stanley Cup champion, 50 goals in, what, five consecutive seasons or what? No, six consecutive seasons. Six consecutive 50-goal seasons from 74 through 1980. Now, he ends up retiring at a young age in 1985. And most of it's because of a dispute with his head coach. His head coach was his own line mate, his own center, uh, Jacques Lemaire. And Jacques Lemaire, of course, is known for his fame as being a Stanley Cup winning head coach and is a longtime head coach and was a, a very good hockey player in his own right. And what Guy Lafleur probably doesn't get enough credit for was his dominance on the sport of hockey over the course of the time that he played. He was pre-Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky is on a level by himself. Wayne Gretzky did things that nobody in the history of the NHL is going to be able to do again. But prior to that, people were looking at LaFleur the same way. The reason that, you know, I don't remember Guy LaFleur in the same light is I remember following the New York Rangers in the 1988-89 season as a 9-slash-10-year-old, which actually I, I didn't make it to 10 in 89 because it was the beginning of the hockey season. So as a 9-year-old, watching hockey and watching the New York Rangers knowing that he pretty much was a shell of what he was in his dominant times. The internet was in its infancy. I wasn't able to sit here and look at, you know, Guy Lafleur's hockey card, which I didn't collect hockey cards at, at, at the time. I've collected very few in my life. But I, I was not aware of Guy Lafleur as the 50-goal scorer for six straight seasons and the four-time Stanley Cup champion with the Montreal Canadiens. I remember him playing for the Rangers, and for the most part, he seemed like he played pretty well. But he wasn't that all-time Hall of Fame player. And I think there's a lot of people that grew up around the same time I did, certainly non-hockey fans like myself, that will remember the name Guy Lafleur and may remember, if not that year in 1988-89 with the Rangers, but in 89-90 and the next year in 90-91 with the Quebec Nordiques. A good player. A serviceable player, but a player that pretty much was at the end of his career, his age 37 through 39 seasons, when he walked away at age 33 from the Montreal Canadiens. Now remember, there was a lot of animosity that existed within that organization, and a lot that very seldom gets talked about. You know, you think about uh, Mario Tremblay, 
the uh, the old coach, but the the obviously the longtime former player. He was the coach. He didn't get along with Patrick Waugh. That led to the trade of Patrick Waugh. But you looked at the, the Montreal teams, and they really, for a franchise perspective, are the face of the NHL. You know, the 24 championships that they've won as a franchise really put it at the pinnacle of the sport. They don't get the same respect, certainly, than the Yankees or the Celtics or, you know, whoever you'd want to pick in football. Is it the Patriots? Is it the Packers? Listen, the Packers won more championships. We, 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 live, we live in football like it's only about the Super Bowl era, like football or in a professional state didn't exist before that. But whatever, that's for, that's for, another, that's for another discussion. But, you know, you think about it, and I, I really, really try to understand, and I, I correct myself, the Canadians, 23 Stanley Cups, 25 NHL championships. So, 25 out of probably a little over 100 years, a little, you know, well over 100 years, you know, you tell me that there are few teams that are as dominant as they are in the world of sports. Now, another fallen icon, and I, I wouldn't say great, but I would say a very good football player and a football player that makes a lot of a lot of people remember their youth. And that's Daryl LaMonica, a longtime quarterback for the Raiders, the Oakland Raiders in the late 60s and the early part of the 1970s, led the team in 1969 to a 12-1-1 record, um, AFL champion, three times, never won the Super Bowl, but it was also his career kind of coincided with the Super Bowl era. So you're looking at a, a quarterback that was dominant, but certainly doesn't get the respect that, let's say, a Kenny Stabler does, or even a Jim Plunkett. And Jim Plunkett, once again, not in a Hall of Fame, but a two-time Super Bowl winning quarterback. Kind of makes you think of Eli Manning a little bit. Eli Manning's career, was he really that dominant throughout? The one thing that stands out is he won the two Super Bowls. I think you look at Jim Plunkett the same way. Eli Manning, because of the pedigree, and he's Peyton's brother, and uh, you know, you really saw, most of the people saw a lot, or the majority of Eli Manning's career. I think he's going to get a little more respect than Plunkett. But, you know, Daryl LaMonica, I thought, was better than Jim Plunkett. You're looking at somebody that went out there um, in a time where there's a lot more interceptions thrown in the NFL. He threw for over 30 touchdowns twice in his career. He threw for over 3,000 yards a couple times in his career. Didn't have the longevity, certainly. You know, he didn't play forever. Uh, you know, he didn't play as long as Kenny Stabler did. You know, and, and probably didn't have the, the notoriety and respect that Jim Plunkett had being... What was Plunkett? He was the number one overall pick, right, in the 1971 draft taken by the New England Patriots. And, and he listen, if you look at the three seasons that LaMonica had that he was at the top of his game and he put the three seasons, three best seasons of Jim Plunkett's career, I think LaMonica was better. But certainly somebody that, you know, if you're in the now, you may not know too much, but a very good quarterback, not Hall of Fame worthy. I don't think you're going to have much of a discussion about whether Daryl LaMonica could be in the Hall of Fame. But, you know, a very good quarterback, you know, passing away at the age of 80 years old. Last thing I wanted to touch on, and we'll, we'll talk about on Thursday, we'll talk about Tyson Fury. 
We'll talk about, uh, you know, you want to talk about fans, whether it's Yankee fans, whether it's Miles Straw. I'll touch on all that stuff coming next, this coming Thursday. But, you know, there's a pitcher in Japan that just had a great streak. He threw a perfect game, retired, obviously, all 27 batters that he faced in a game. The next 24 batters he, fa- he, he faced, he retired in the next game. Had a perfect game going in the ninth inning. Actually had a chance to pitch back-to-back perfect games. He was taken out probably because of pitch count reasons. You understand the game that we were in right now. And, you know, the chance at immortality, as, uh, as you've heard say, when it comes to David Wells throwing a perfect game. Immortality. I think takes a back seat when it comes to the long-term health and duration of players on the field. And that applies to Japan. But I look at Roki Sasaki and a guy that retired 52 straight batters before he gave up a hit in his most recent start. I think there's a lot of fodder behind it. I think it's going to get a lot of attention. I think this guy, based off of this particular run that he's had, is going to get himself a major league contract if he wants to go out there and play major league baseball. If he wants to bypass the posting system and not make it paid a lot of money, if he wants to play the amount of time that he has to to qualify to be posted by his team, he's going to do that. He's going to get a chance to pitch in the major leagues. But I compare it a lot to what you saw with Masahiro Tanaka. 24-0 and zero in a season. And how many times did it get brought up when he was posted and teams were bidding on him and the Yankees signed him to a long-term contract? I, I think it's a lot of fodder. It's a lot to create in regards to not necessarily urban legend because it actually happened, but it's an urban legend that actually happened. So you look at it, and I think Roki Sasaki is going to get a chance to pitch in the major leagues. Do I believe he's going to be the next Sandy Koufax? Do I think he's going to be the next Pedro Martinez? Do I think he's even going to be the next Tanaka or Hideo Nomo? Probably not, but he's going to get a lot of mileage over the fact that he retired 52 straight batters over the course of multiple games. Masahiro Tanaka got a seven-year contract, if I'm not mistaken, and I just want to make sure I got it right, because he was 24-0. and zero. Now listen, did, did, did he live up to it? Did he, did, was, was his contract worth it? Yeah, it certainly was. And you look at what he ended up signing for with the Yankees, he, he ended up living or doing what was expected. Seven years, $155 million he ended up getting. But I bet you he doesn't get a contract that big if he doesn't go 24-0. and zero. And I think you're going to say the same thing about Roki Sasaki somewhere down the road. We'll be back with you with another edition of the Passball Show coming this coming Thursday. This is John Pielli. Passball Show is brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. I may come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. It'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run 
or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park, I'm not even supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside and hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100%, unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing at put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. You damn well right better give him a contract extension. You damn well right better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion.